Revelation 21, the first seven verses, and then we'll work our way through it. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Well, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ has uh, shown to us the, the history-long battle uh, that was born in the Garden of Eden, promising the, the crushing of God's arch enemy, the dragon, that serpent of old, Satan, along with all those who align themselves in ranks of allegiance to him. So there's two peoples, the offspring of God, the offspring of the enemy of God. So the revelation has been about the triumph of God over the forces of evil. We've seen that as we worked our way through it. Every foe has been vanquished. Every opposition to the purposes of God have been rendered obsolete. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord over all. Uh, We looked at the intermediate state for the last couple of weeks. Heaven, a a place that is seen, it's, it's touched, it's inhabited by those who share in the first resurrection, those who've been born again to the Spirit of God. When they die, they ascend into the presence of God. And that time is provisional. That, that time, the intermediate state, is temporary. Um, it's incomplete as we read the Scripture because the climax of it all is uh, when God's people, whether they're on earth or whether they're with the Lord, take part in the second resurrection. So heaven as we know it, it's, it's, it's temporary. Glorified bodies on the coming of our Lord, at the second coming of our Lord, uh, will experience God's full, complete, redemptive work. Amen? So, although we know that when we die, as participants in the first resurrection, it is the new heaven and the new earth for which we ultimately look forward to. And this is what we see presented before us this morning. It's at that point the world as we know it will end. All the effects of sin will be removed from creation. No longer will there be any separation uh, between the physical and the spiritual. This is what we long for. This is what we anticipate. This is what we are certain of, is the word declares it. So Revelation 21 here tells us that God will dwell permanently with his people in a new heaven and a new earth. 
saints and glorified bodies. You long for the day, amen? So certain effects of redemption will at that time be applied to creation. New heaven, new earth, verse 1. You know, Jesus spoke of this eternal dimension back in Revelation 3 when he wrote, when he spoke to the church of Philadelphia. He spoke about the new Jerusalem which comes down out of, out of heaven. New heaven, a new earth, it's a combination, a joining of the two. A glory that surpasses the human imagination. It's the kingdom and it's full manifest glory. And chapter 21 here opens with this, this breathtaking description. Um, the beast, the false prophet, Satan himself, have been cast into the lake of fire, along with death, along with the grave. We saw that in chapter 19, verse 20, and again in chapter 20, verses 10 and 14. All that was and all that is destructive is removed from the picture. So that's all gone now. Amen? So we have all our eschatology right. Amen? (laughs) Now, as you know, heaven and earth were originally created to be man's permanent home, but sin and death entered by way of the first Adam, and it turned the world into a place of rebellion and alienation. And as a result, it became enemy-occupied territory from the one true God, the creator of all, the creator over all. But the Lord has been working redemption out throughout history. Since the fall, since that moment, God is working redemption out to affect an entire transformation, the entire transformation that we see here presented before us, Revelation 21-22. This is a complete renovation. The evil consequences of sin, removed. The, The ultimate liberation of the cosmos from bondage and sin and corruption occur at this point. So the work of Christ's redemption will be fully revealed in the future resurrection. We read in Colossians 1 that it is for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Did you get that? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This, this is the, the finale of God's historical redemptive process. And the entire cosmos will share in that resurrection. You remember in Romans 8, you know, we read, For the creation waits with, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Listen to the way the Phillips translation puts it. It says, The whole creation is on tiptoe. I don't have it up there, but it's on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. It's like a child standing on his tiptoes, like my grandson when he stands on his tiptoes waiting for grandpa to come. <laughs> you remember that when you're a little kid, you're standing on your tiptoe, you're waiting for your grandma, your grandpa, or somebody, or your dad to come home from work or whatever. Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So, so the heaven of eternity will be different from the heaven uh, where God now dwells. 
new heaven, new earth, combined glorious resurrection work of God upon his return. There at the consummation of all things, the Lord will merge heaven with an entirely new universe. Full renovation of heaven and earth. And this will be our eternal dwelling place with the Lord. And that's the hope of every redeemed person. Everyone who's redeemed. This is our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is not just to go to the intermediate state. This is the ultimate hope. This is it. And you'll be with your grandparents. And you'll be with all the great men and women of God who, who, who have preceded us throughout history. Rejoicing together. 2 Peter 3.13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, long, long ago, it was Abraham whose heart was set upon something much greater than geography. Amen? He was looking for something much greater than a plot of land and a piece of dirt. Hebrews 11 not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, desiring a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call, be called their God. He's prepared for them a city. This is the city. This is it. So long before Abraham's ancestors inherited territories of, of that dirt, he was looking beyond property borders he's looking to a new heaven and new earth abraham was a nomad amen and he looked by faith to this eternal city and that that cosmic renovation was promised you know through the prophets we read in isaiah 65 behold i create a new heaven and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind did you get that they won't be remembered what about my loved ones? Who won't be, they won't be remembered. They won't come into mind. Ever. They're in our minds now. And we, we intercede on their behalf now. But all evil will be removed. So Revelation 21 is a, com- is a complete exposition of, of that verse in Isaiah 65. 65 verse 17. It's the most exhaustive um, and, and descriptive picture in all the Bible of the new Jerusalem. The new, the, that's the capital city of, of the new heaven and the new earth. Um, new does not mean um, new as opposed to old or new as in second and altogether different. It, it's not totally different. It's somewhat different. The same word is used as far as new goes for in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. So new as in a change, change in quality. In the sense of it being glorified, free from the curse of, of sin. So like the present heaven and earth, our bodies are also destined to perish. These bodies will perish and be raised again. Beale puts it like this, G.K. Beale. He says, just as our bodies will be raised without loss of our personal identity, so too the new heaven and earth will be completely recreated while at the same time 
maintaining some continuity to the present heaven and earth. Imagine that. It's already beautiful in a fallen state. Amen? Think when the curse is lifted. So in other words, what we're saying here, and what Beale basically just said, is although they will be... They'll be completely recreated with, with every trace of human sin purged from them. Uh, in our new bodies, the new heaven and new earth also will be recognizable in the same way, whatever way that is, that our resurrection bodies will be. You don't ask me because I don't know. Nobody knows. So we're not given exact detail with regard to many respects of the resurrection but there'll be familiarity there. Now, one thing, back in verse 1, we read that the sea was no more. Uh, throughout the book of Revelation, um, the sea has been described as the, the um, abode of the dragon, right? The abode, figurative language, is the place of the dead. It was d- dominated by Babylon the Great, who sits on many waters. So to all of John's first century readers, the sea was a disturbing place, a place of tempest, a a place of trouble. That's how they viewed. Jews were not seafaring people. So some believe that in the new heavens, in in the new earth, because there will be no place for the dragon to hide, no abode for the dead, or um, no unbelieving nations, engaging in commerce and there'll be no longer storms to sweep the earth therefore they believe that in the new heaven and the new earth there will be no literal sea but even though the sea is not man's uh, natural habitat here and that he can't survive in it without you know artificial man-made support like a boat <laughs> or a floaty or a raft Right, those kids' arm floaties they have now. Um, even for the Jews, um, you know, the, the picture of the sea um, was viewed even in the Psalms in a couple songs as death, where death was equated to drowning. In Psalm forty-two and Psalm sixty-nine, so uh, if this is literal, it means for one that all marine life will be absent. That wouldn't be good. Because when God originally created it, he said everything was good. Even creatures in the sea were good. So if there's no sea, there's no creatures in the sea. So I think it's doubtful if this, to, to take this as literal, wooden literal. We've seen how, how sea has been used metaphorically throughout Revelation, so... It would seem to, to keep that in its proper context. The new earth may very well have lots of water on it. And I don't think this is a literal sea. This is the sea of trouble. It'll be gone. It'll be no mo. No, say no mo. <laughs> keep us awake. Okay, then verse 6. Jumping down. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give you. There's some water. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be 
my son. So speaking of water, John, he's the one who received this vision. Um, He's always enjoyed using water as a symbol of life um, and sustenance, found most fully and completely in our Lord Jesus Christ. And John recorded, Jesus is saying, he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He will never be thirsty. So now he hears, you know, Jesus promising those in the new Jerusalem, uh, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink from the spring of water of life, the water of life without payment. So it's grace alone, this we know, amen, it's grace alone that accounts for the presence of the redeemed in the new Jerusalem. They're there because of grace alone. And they partake freely, okay, freely of the waters of life. Okay, grace, free. Nevertheless, as we read this, it is grace that operates through perseverance. Amen? Because it says to the one who conquers. The one who conquers, verse 7, will have this heritage. The one who perseveres to the end will have this heritage. So it's grace that operates through perseverance. It doesn't operate apart from it. Are we clear on that? Amen? It's not operative through those who with flailing mind and motion wave their hands saying, Hey man, it's all about grace. And they merely confess Christ with their mouth. You see what what I'm saying here? I'm justified by faith alone. That's right, you are. But what did Luther say? We are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Revelation was written in order to encourage professing Christians to conquer, to overcome the world, to persevere to the end. Some people profess it and they're not engaged in overcoming the world at all. They just say, just the thing, thing, thing. And that's the extent of it. So it's not surprising that the theme of conquering or overcoming the world is very important to, to John back in his first epistle. Remember that? In 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, they remind us of those three tests of assurance. And they're inseparable. First, it's true confession of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true confession, which reveals that one has been born of God. You, you, You believe it. You don't just say it. You trust. You believe in the fact. And submitted oneself to this God-man, resulting in the true love of God. Those who are born of God love God because he first loved us. And then that leads us to obey his commandments, which we do not consider to be burdensome. Obeying his commandments for the Christian are not burdensome. Amen? Because we have the Spirit of God. We're in union with God through Christ. We want to do his will. We have a desire to do his will. We have a desire to carry out the command to conquer, to overcome. 
Can I get a witness here? So it's the one who conquers, verse 7, who inherits these blessings, who has this heritage, and that is the blessing of the covenant they, they confidently professed with their mouth. They actually receive it. This is not mere said grace that, that does not produce perseverance. This is true operative grace that produces the desire and the drive to persevere to the end. That's what grace does. Amen? It's not separate from the life of the believer and his engagement with God the Holy Spirit to persevere. I mean, this is language we've heard before from our Lord. I mean, just you can go back and, and read the letters, the seven letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. He who overcomes. He who overcomes. He who conquers. He who overcomes. They will inherit this. Amen? So those whom God catches by grace, by grace are transformed into Christ's image, continuing to be conformed as they persevere to the end. In Romans 5.21, we read that grace reigns through righteousness. Okay, Grace reigns through righteousness. Okay, so that's the people of verse 7. But verse 8, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You know, Paul says something similar, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 6. He said this, do not be deceived. This is a letter to the church. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? And he goes on to say, such were some of you. You were redeemed out of that. Separated from that. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, sanctified, justified. Uh, down in verse 27, it says here, Nothing unclean will ever enter in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 15 says, Outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and those who practice falsehood. Jesus is one of many ways. That's falsehood. Jesus is one way. He's one spoke that gets you to the hub. That's falsehood. And that gets you to the lake of fire. Easily. And their end is the second death. Everlasting punishment. You know, sometimes the question is raised with with regard to the uh, duration of hell, that it's eternal punishment. People will say, if our sins are finite, you know, they ask, why is hell infinite? Okay, fair question. One answer is that sinning against an infinite God, just one sin against this infinite God, deserves the eternal punishment of God. He's infinite. And the second thing that most people don't realize is that hell has no remedial effect at all. People who go to hell are not sorry for their sin. 
They're not down there with their arms reached up with repentant minds and mouths. When they're damned to eternal hell, they never, ever cease from sinning. Ever. As a matter of fact, their sinning will only grow worse throughout eternity. Imagine that. Why? Because there will be all, all restraints of God's common grace that exist now and that, that unrepentant sinners experience, the common grace of God will be removed. Removed. No more. So they can only sin continuously throughout eternity. And they will become less and less the image bearers of God. So the fact that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father in heaven, on earth, under the earth, that does not mean that everyone will be doing it joyfully. All God's saints, those in verse 9, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, will be singing it with joy. Amen? Those of verse 8 will acknowledge it through gritted teeth. They will acknowledge it. They have to acknowledge it. And they will do it with broken knees before their creator, before whom they have no excuse. Praise God, we're saved. They will no longer be able to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They won't be rejoicing when they say it, but they will say it. So sin against God, the Lord, the one true God who's infinite, demands infinite punishment in hell. Our Lord, on those hours on the cross when hell descended upon him, our Lord Jesus Christ, he suffered and exhausted the, inif- the infinite punishment that hell requires. He absorbed it all because he's infinite. That's how he could do it, just in a matter of hours on the cross. Because he's an infinite being. Full deity. The perfect righteous son of God. Now, for those who are in the son, right... In our place, condemned he stood. Those receive what's described in verses 9 through 21. John sees Jerusalem now in a new phase. This is an analogy, amen? A new phase portrayed for us as human language can most fully explain. This is difficult. How do you describe this? <laughs> right? Now, when John lived, he lived in a day where cities were relatively small, uh, walled communities, just packed with people. Okay, so this is the day in which he lived. And, and John here sees this distant mass of walls and gates. And when you have gates, you had towers. And this is what cities looked like. And for, for every true Jew, Every true believing Jew in, in John's day longed to see Jerusalem in the temple. 
And it was the law that, you know, men had to journey in every year. And, uh, and those who couldn't longed to do so. And it's recorded that the first century travelers used to say, looking upon the city as they, you know, come around a curve, and they would look at it, and if the, when the sun hit it just right, as it was decorated with gold, the temple, if you read Josephus, and how that thing was lined with gold, and, you know, grapes the size of a man, you know, laden with gold, and then the limestone walls, when, 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 it, when, the, when the sunlight hit it, it was blinding, they said. Brilliant. Okay? That doesn't compare to this. Amen? At all. The vision of the New Jerusalem in verse 11 and 18 is, is, is described in terms of its jasper-like hue. These brilliant stones, high walls with 12 gates, verse 12. Well, that portrays uh, protection and security. Eternal security, protection. Inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, verse 12. Three great gates on each side, north, south, east, west. The wall of the city has 12 foundations. And inscribed there, notice, are the names of the 12 apostles, verse 14. And this ensures uh, continuity and completeness with the old and new covenant. The church is the Israel of God, amen? Galatians 6, the church is the Israel of God. The true Israel of God, because we're in the true Israel light, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the city here is represented as a cube, possibly alluding to the Holy of Holies, the dimensions described back in 1 Kings 6. So in the New Jerusalem, the entire city is holy, the Holy of Holies for eternity. Verse 16, uh, the proportions are, are staggering. The city measures 1,200 stadia in every direction. This is clearly symbolic. Multiples of 12 and 10 are being used here to describe the proportions of the city. It's a perfect cube, big enough to contain the redeemed of the world throughout time. And it's interesting that the combined length here of the four walls, 4 times 12,000 is 144,000 stadia. We've seen that number before, haven't we not? Back in chapter 7. It's a number of completeness. Verse 17, uh, the walls are me- measured by a different unit, 144 cubits. Cubit is like 21 and a half inches or so, you know, like your forearm, elbow to your hand, 21 and a half inches. But if the, if the wall's height is that, then this would be a city out of proportion. The city's 1,500 miles long, high, wide, described as a giant cube. He measured its wall. This is how we read that verse there about the the measurement of an angel. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. And the walls of the earthly uh, Jerusalem had been breached many times. Amen? The walls of any city on this earth could be breached. But the heavenly city is protected 
by walls that are impossible to breach. So I think this makes more sense describing the width of the wall rather than the height. And John's point is that inside the walls of the new Jerusalem were forever safe, always safe, forever safe from the two greatest enemies, and that is sin and Satan. And Satan's cast into the lake of fire. Here now we now dwell in the presence of Almighty God in this holy city. Beautiful beyond description. Filled with all these precious gems. And it's beautified not because of the gems, but because of the presence of the Lamb. Amen? It's the presence of the Lamb. He makes everything look better. He makes everything look brighter. Amen? So I always say, man, the only good in me is Christ in me. That's it. That is it. He is it. My miserable self. I got a tote around here. I was telling the guys on Thursday, you know, look at myself in the mirror and go, you know what? You really do disgust me. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's Christ. It's Christ that makes everything look better and everyone look better, those who have the Spirit of God. And that's why you can say the only good in me is Christ in me. That is the only good in me. It's Jesus Christ. I get a witness from my wife. Amen, sister. <laughs> Verse 22, there's no physical temple structure in the New Jerusalem. Obviously, there's no need for sacrifice since Christ's death alone is sufficient for the redemption of his covenant people. Amen? God is the glory of the new city. Verse 23. This reminds us of chapter 4. Is it verse 3? He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. This is all because of the, the glory of God. This is all the glory of God. It's radiant, beautiful. There's no sun there. There's no moon. That takes us back to Isaiah 60, verse 19. And then we have to ask the question, you know, are we to think of the new heaven, new heavens and the new earth, without you know, luminaries in the sky? I mean, he, he created the universe and he said it was good. Amen? He said it was good. He has a name for every star. I don't think it's likely that there won't be luminaries there. Again, I think if it's a restored, fully renovated, you know, creation, the first creation, everything was good, why wouldn't they be there? Jesus dominates the universe. I think that's what's being conveyed here. And then in verses uh, 24 to 26... By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Not only those who are written, in, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, remember that which served as a foretaste at it, it Pentecost. When the nations were heard in Jerusalem, 
Pentecost. Baptized by the Spirit in Acts 2 as the judgment of the separation of languages was temporarily lifted on that day. In that place, at that moment, it's now seen in its fullness. The nations, all redeemed of the nations, gather into the new Jerusalem. So the promise given to Abraham long ago that, that he would be the father of many nations here has been ultimately fulfilled. Right here. With the nations. Magnificent scene, amen? I didn't go read all the details. You, you can read the details yourself, but um, all the, the brilliance of, of the stones, the, the pure gold, verse 18, clear as glass. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, on down the line. Verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. No temple, I saw no temple in it, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No need of the sun, a magnificent scene. One day will be reality for all God's people, amen? This is our hope, this is our ultimate hope. With bodies raised from the dead, imperishable. No more pain. No more tears. No more sadness. No more grief. No more sin. The curse is finally and fully eradicated. So here we will see and serve God in our flesh. Isn't that what Job once prophesied? Remember Job? Job said this, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall shall behold, and not another. So what Job prophesied there, John sees here and confirms what Job said in Job 19, verse 25. Amen? That's chapter 21. Then we'll look at chapter 22 tomorrow. I mean... um, what? Next Lord's Day. And then on the 23rd, we'll do a, a look at, a focus in on why Revelation was written. What was the main point? What's the main purpose, you know, with regard to who it was written to? And again, it's an encouragement. It was encouragement, exhortation to persevere to the end, to conquer to the end. This is what awaits God's people, the final judgment And then that judgment does not touch the redeemed of the Lord. Never taste it. Amen? He says, persevere.